Hello, everyone. It is the Ides of June. You're listening to Trash But Ratio. You made it to the podcast, you downloaded it, and you're here. Uh, I am joined by Destiny Sturdivant. Hello. Kyle Turner. Hi. And my good friend, M. Hello. What, Hello. are we not your good friends, Jackson? I'm 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 Jackson's best friend, so yeah. No, you're, that's that checks out. <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> Look at us it. getting snubbed. Suck I put a Twitter post <laughs> that Jackson was one of my best friends, and look where it got me, Kyle. Look where it got me. Sorry, that's why my best friend is chocolate. <laughs> so, ooh, oh. so am I. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, hang on. Oh, you know. Okay, we're fine. I don't know. What I don't. I don't. Ha- I don't <laughs> have the best friend. Food. I meant skin color. No, your best friend, it's me. And then it's Jackson. I don't have a best friend. I like how I'm... And I like how I am no one's best friend. Wow. You're one of my best friends. I have a lot of best friends. Thank you. I feel so much more validated. Thank you. I have weird (laughs) abandonment issues. That's why I care. Uh, Same. Uh, I'm a good friend because I guess I'm just going to do this anecdote quickly. Uh, uh, Yet today on Skype with them. I was walking home from the Sainsbury's and exposed M because Em was on Skype with me uh, to ludicrous, the most ludicrous, authentic Britishness possible. As two people walked past and got the attention of their friend by just yelling "Oi, oi, 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 oi!" for about five seconds. I, I, so there's, so I'm, I'm just playing Tomb Raider, and suddenly I hear "Oi, oi, 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 oi!" and there's a long pause. And I'm like, Jackson, was that a television? Because that was the most cartoonish Britishness I've ever heard. That can't be a human. It was two people walking past who wanted to get the attention of their friend. It's just like a fucking Cockney <laughs> explosion. It's the worst. Yeah. Best uh, worst or worst time. worst. It was. I was delighted. Uh, yeah. It, uh, you love it whenever uh, the true cartoonishness of Britishness is put in your face and you realize it's not an exaggeration in America at all. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> uh, how's everyone else been? How's everyone doing today? I'm okay. I'm glad it's Friday. I'm starting a three-day weekend, so I'm fucking f- fantastic. Uh, Hell, yes. I I'm wish I had. All right. That's good. <laughs> that was a very pathetic all right. <laughs> No, it's, I'm just tired. I'm back to work in Provincetown. I moved. It's um, a process, you know, like getting back into the swing of things, yada, yada, yada. Um, but I'm not only working as houseboy, I'm also working at the local art house theater. And that has been a, pretty much an amazing experience so far. That sounds like a lot of fun. I was yeah, working in a good. sex shop, but that... I just the the owner and I decided to mutually part ways, um, mostly on my end, but um, because my social anxiety was kicking in at unfortunate moments. Oh, oh, yeah. Are you doing better uh, now? Oh yeah, the movie theater is very much my home. I I was going there every week last year, anyways, and uh, and I really liked my boss. And apparently, she had interviewed like seven other people, but I was the only one that she hired on the spot. Cool. Yeah. Kyle rules. Thank you. Suck it, those seven but, other people. Yeah, but that's it's been a good experience so far. Nice, that's good. Happy to hear uh, it. I also have a canker sore, so that's why I sound pathetic. Aw, it's hurt. That's a bad. It's a bad scene. I don't mm. like it. It's not mm-hmm. fun. Nope. Not fun for anybody. Who's seen a movie? Who wants to go first with the movie watching talks? 
Em and I always pick out of the movies we watch together, like which one we're going to talk about on this show. And I already forgot the one I said I would talk about out of the two we saw. So <laughs> I'll go first. I'll go. Oh, you can go. <laughs> um, Thank you. So I, so I guess I can have two movies to talk about. But the most recent release I have to talk about <laughs> is Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Out of the Shadows. Because I decided... Uh, yes. Uh, that the trailer looked silly, and so me and Destiny watched the original teen, or not the, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles from 2012, right? Oh, no, 2014. 2014. Man, time flies. It was talked about on the very first episode of this podcast. And, uh, then we watched Out of the Shadows, and those are, like, remarkably fun, like, kids action superhero movies that put all of the grim, dark, for adults, su- bullshit superhero movies, your X-Men's, your Civil Wars, your Batman's v Superman's to shame. Because it is funny and charming and has a lot of heart. I like this story of just these four fucking dopey kids trying to save the world with their, uh, like weeb-tastic ninja skills and hip-hop stylings. It's super good. I feel like it, it captures like what it is like to just be a young boy trying to deal with the world in like kind of the same way that uh Attack the Block does, weirdly enough. Uh but with the very broad strokes of its uh comic book origins. Uh also worth noting, Tyler Perry is maybe one of the best oh, comedic character beautiful. actors of our generation in this movie. <laughs> so he beautiful. kills it. He kills it so hard. Comic-Con. Is <laughs> <laughs> one of his lines. Uh, yeah. Sorry, everyone. Um, I was going to say that I was a big ninja fan growing up. Like, ninja. Ninja, ninja or Ninja Turtles. Like, all of it, my friend. Three Ninjas, that movie franchise from the 90s, that was like my, one of my favorite movies. Uh, I love the Power Rangers and Ninja Turtles 2, Secret of the Ooze, Power of the Ooze, Secret I can't Ooze. remember the name. Secret of the Ooze, thank you, was the first movie I saw in the theater, I think? It was either that or Ghost Dad. So, I don't know, whatever, whichever one of those came out first, one of my first theater experiences. And um, I had the soundtrack to the third Ninja Turtles movie on cassette tape, <laughs> even though that movie is terrible. So this was fun for me on multiple levels. Like, roll your eyes as much as you want at remake stuff. And I mean, I guess this isn't the podcast for that, but I just I'm speaking to the listener. Um, it. It's it's too spirited. It's too fun to hate. Like, I just don't get all the weird, like, of course this movie was bad kind of stuff I've been seeing out there. Because mm-hmm. I had so much fun watching Laura Linney just slum it, just overact the hell out of her tiny police officer role. <laughs> and uh, Megan Fox actually, like, having fun watching Megan Fox, which is something I don't think I've ever done outside of a Ninja Turtles movie. <laughs> Mega Fox is great, especially in the first one. Uh, yeah, they give her more to do. Uh, this movie, the downside of her being in it is, is the fact that, like, since there's extra dudes than usual, what with, uh, what's his freaking name? Arrow dude. Uh, Stephen wanted... Amell. Thank you. I wanted to call him Simon Amstel, and I'm like, that is not the right dude. Oh, <laughs> uh, but can you imagine? <laughs> Simon Amstel is Casey no Jones, right? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um. Anyway, uh, yeah, too many dudes in this movie, so she doesn't get a whole lot to do. There's a scene where she literally 
changes from one sexy nerd disguise into a sexy schoolgirl disguise, like, within five minutes. And that's so eye-rolly. And the first time I saw the trailer for this film, I turned to my friend and I said, why does this movie want kids to fuck Megan Fox so badly? (laughs) (laughs) But other than that, like, I just, I thought the movie was delightful. I'm just gushing now, so I'll stop talking. Uh, yeah, it's really good. I saw it as well. Um, I'm convinced that Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles might be like the scientifically refined best uh, like kids action premise in uh, of the, like of this type, just because the personalities of the brothers are so well defined, and that every story is they're kind of apart, and then they come together and it feels great. Like it, every yeah. story is identical, and the format is so strong that you kind of just you know, uh, slot that in, and it works. And, and, and it uh, yeah. Sorry, go on. Oh no, I was just gonna say, and that's not true of like fucking X Men Apocalypse, which I also saw, which is ludicrous. Well, the thing about Ninja Turtles is you don't need any background other than they f- were turned into Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. <laughs> it's kind of all there. It's kind <laughs> so, of all like top. it just goes. Like it, you don't need any extra information. You don't even n- have to know anything about the comic book or the cartoon or the newer cartoons or anything else in this franchise. The movie works perfectly well standalone, and I think the only people that I could think of that hate it had all that, they took all that baggage with them Mm -hmm. and just wanted to compare. Because the people in these movies are having fun making them. So I don't, I mean, I don't know. I could go on. I'm sorry. I didn't realize I had this many strong opinions (laughs) about the Ninja Turtles. Yeah. Seamus is just happy to be that. (laughs) (laughs) Who's Seamus? No, nope. he is, <laughs> isn't he a WWE wrestler? superstar? A wrestler. Yes, <laughs> he, he plays one of the characters in the film. The film. The film. Oh, he does. Okay. He tries to. <laughs> yeah, he definitely tries to. <laughs> 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 um, uh, so, uh, Kyle, what have you seen? I watched Zootopia last night. Shit! Yes, you did. What'd you think? <sighs> um. The short the short answer that I gave my boss was because um, he lent it to me was um, it's pleasant it's cute it's a very cute very 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 basic introduction to institutional sexism and racism the longer answer is like that metaphor is very very shaky um, and the more that I think about it the messier the film is which I don't I'm still deciding on whether that is necessarily a bad thing because um, like scene to scene thing the the a lot of the gestures and and metaphors work but like as a whole it doesn't really come together ideologically because like um not they have trouble like translating the metaphor a lot of times i think or like a lot of things aren't necessarily as analogous as they would like them to be because i guess in an ideal world this film is about the lie of post-racial america or the or or post-feminist America, um, and the realization that these kinds of forms of oppression and marginalization marginalization still exist, especially within like uh, metropolitan areas. Um, and I thought the funny thing was like it doesn't really establish a normative lens that that world exists in, um, even though like whiteness is all over it, despite the fact that there is technically no such thing as white within that film um and so it has trouble balancing as to like what exactly the forms of socialization are in terms of like why 
pre- this predator prey dichotomy still exists and why that kind of i guess micro why those forms of microaggressions are still in existence besides like um like the parenting thing other than that there i don't really get this sense of um origin or or i don't know I, i'm having trouble describing it but do you know what i mean i agree with you that the um the metaphors are really sh- or the analogy is super shaky uh, I enjoyed the movie. I thought it was really cute, and I thought that, like, if you're gonna show that movie to, especially, like, a little white kid, it's, like, a great way to, like, start that conversation with them, mm. and, like, obviously, I don't have any little white kids in my family, but I could, maybe someday, uh, but, uh, when I talked to my little cousins about it, they were more into, like, the funnier parts, Mm-hmm. Uh, that had nothing to do with anything, but it just was kind of amusing to me because I tried to be like, "What did you think when uh, they were the the fox got treated differently because he was a predator?" And she's like, "Well, I want you to play that Shakira song on YouTube." <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, no, I, I I think I know what you mean, but I don't know, like like within this world, mm-hmm. whiteness is decentralized. It is not the thing, and no. yet because to my understanding, I kind of Googled the directors and, and writers, and they all—they seem to be either white or white passing, and I mm-hmm. think that has informed a lot of the worldview and ideologies within this film, because it doesn't... Okay, I was talking to a friend over dinner about this, and I was like, to a kid, I think you could like relatively easily explain, or maybe I'm just like projecting like different forms of socialization like you could like you could tell a child that sometimes racism appears on tv or in the um political system etc and i don't get that sense that they put that much effort into doing that here like even in its most basic forms like different forms of where oppression and marginalization can stem from institutionally i think the point of the movie was less about that and more about i mean like it tries it really tries but i think it was more about this base level of something a kid can relate to which is just how people treat one another and it tries to like expose this side of the world where there's inequity but it like i don't think it wanted to go any deeper like i think Mm -hmm. it was fine with what it you know what i mean i don't know if i agree with that though because i feel like it's putting its identity politics right on the table and i get that contextually because it's the kids films that they can own it can only go so far like it Um, can't be the wire yeah it can't be the not and, and and I don't mean to sound like I'm asking it for asking it to be the wire, but mm. I, I think that there there could have been a better establishment of like so there's this predator prey dichotomy in the film, mm-hmm. and it doesn't explain really why that is or or like I, it doesn't have I do not think that it has like as much of a presence in the world building as it does in some of the exposition like some of it is just exposition but i don't get the sense that it's so ingrained into their world i don't I think, think that, that the... i don't think that would have been hard to do 
I think it tries and just doesn't do a very good job. Like, because they show that like it's historical, and they show that like it it it's. I don't know what I, I'm trying to I, say, but does somebody else I, want to take over? Yeah, um, I think that what that movie does well uh, is that it doesn't tr- like. It, you're right; it doesn't like try to be super specific about its metaphor, and it does like the uh, the allegory doesn't hold up. Uh, either which way uh, it's like kind of its own thing but what the movie does well and the reason i think it's uh, successful is that it is very specific about uh the nature of power in that the villains of that movie aren't oh no the prey were evil the predator were evil it is like no this institution is capable of uh committing far more violence against the animals in this city uh than like a single predator who has been marked as evil by the identity politics of the world. So I think in that sense, it, it is like, uh, like successful enough for me. Uh, plus, I like I like Destiny says I don't think it's actually as interested in being a one-to-one metaphor. Like its audience on its <laughs> on the list of its uh, like panderings, it's like it's a cute kids movie first, it's furry bait second, and it's uh, uh, like a interesting political metaphor third i don't know Um, if i agree with that because there are so many specific moments where they try to make these um microaggressions analogous to real life microaggressions like the sheep and the hair thing oh yeah they do no no, no, it's not reclamation thing but i think Uh. that's very much very high on its priority list um and i I, I think i'm kind of mixed as to like how well it does that thing as 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 power institutional power as great evil i did think it was very interesting i'm not sh- i'm kind of iffy as to how well it did it because like the bureaucratic thing where my i think my favorite one of my favorite scenes was um where nick nick wilde was talking about how politicians will answer or how p- people in power will answer a question to the press they'll ask a question and then answer it i thought that was very interesting but i feel like a lot of a lot of the actual institutional stuff was a little thin. Like, and I don't know. And I thought that was like, to me, it was like the point of the whole, well, I don't know. I, I think it does a good job for a film that's made it within the f- context it's made in. Yeah. I think but I also, film... like, oh, yeah. I also feel like it could, it, these things can always do better. Like, yeah most definitely so i don't disagree with you at all i just mm-hmm. um i don't know like i'm glad it exists and i hope that more movies kind of try for what it's going for yeah i mean i appreciated i mean i would recommend this movie i thought it was a fun watch and i really liked that scene where that little baby tiger says that he wants to be an actuary um <laughs> that was that was a good joke um and i appreciate that it's that it did have a specificity to what it wanted to say about prejudice because like a lot of movies are just kind of very bland and vague about being judgmental against people and they said this did have a nice specificity about it but um i guess uh i went in with particular expectations which is i guess partially my fault and partially the content of machine's fault because there are so many think pieces whose headlines were about how progressive this movie was and how it was about racism so i had that in the back of my head while watching this film and i guess that was like my preconceived notions definitely colored my perception of the film like i i, I do how think... ironic <laughs> <laughs> 
on the West. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's okay. No, I I get what you mean. It's like it, you want it to be so many things because it's about these things that we 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 all care about, mm-hmm. and so when it doesn't execute it the way you want it, it's like kind of disappointing. But like for a movie about a rabbit and a fox and taking on that structure, like it's I think what they actually get away with is pretty impressive. I just yeah, uh, yeah but those things could always go deeper. They like you know you know there's no. No end. No satisfaction on my end. Mm-hmm. I like the I'm... voice acting a lot. That's yeah, good. I like the the wedding of the vole daughter. That was... What animal was that? <laughs> it was a vole. vole. What's a vole? It's like a weasel chipmunk guy? No, it's it's, clo- it's, it's like a little mouse mole kind of thing. It's like a small burrowing rodent. I laughed okay. so hard when she w- revealed she was pregnant and she was naming her Judy. And when they went to the wedding and they had the little cakes and they're just being so polite. Oh, made me laugh so hard. Yeah. Now uh-huh. I just want to hear Jason Bateman say Chaos Reigns. <laughs> uh, yeah. That was good, Zootopia Talk. Uh, definitely oh. what was the uh, other movie that... Um, the one that got assigned to you in the choices <laughs> in my homework uh we watched <laughs> belladonna of sadness oh shit should have had the wikipedia page up because now i have to say names because i want to get this right so give me like two seconds to just oh you know what i have a postcard i'm gonna grab Did that get on? You can edit that, that out. Tour in in Omaha. Uh yeah, it, the, our draft house had it. Oh okay. Oh that that uh run got picked up for the UK. I don't know if it's coming to um theaters or not, but it's definitely we'll get a release soon. Yeah, so we'll be able yeah. to watch it. The, this was um a 1973 animated movie about this society where like it's. Would you call it Japanese Europe? <laughs> or, you know, it's... I don't know. But it's like sort of the movie of... Sorry, there's an ice cream truck outside and it's so loud. Can you hear that? No. Nope. No. Oh, okay. It's like really loud. and I'm really sorry. <laughs> okay. Um. Anyway, this movie came out in 73. It's this like beautiful water-colored psychedelic mess about this woman who essentially has no power and has her agency constantly like she just never has it the movie starts and she just loses it all immediately and it's super upsetting and then she turns to good old satan to uh get some power back and uh i would (laughs) you know it 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 isn't 100 percent successful like i would almost say that like it's it's still riddled with problems because it's a 70s movie written by men about you know uh sexual agency so it's got a lot of problems because uh, it wants to sensationalize and then also kind of uh look down on rape but it still constantly has a lot of it in it in the way that 70s movies often do Mm-hmm. But it's also it's just a strange film. Like the devil looks like a penis, 
and the more power she like you know? or the sure. <laughs> the more like uh the closer he gets to bending her will, the bigger he gets, and then, like... I get it. Yeah, there's a lot of just yuck moments, but I was just won over by the overall weirdness of the film. Like, there's a scene where somebody is fucked so hard that they just come and all of humanity is built. It's it's crazy. It's Wow. It's just it's so ridiculous. I don't I don't know. And what do you have anything to say? <laughs> um so like I I agree with your uh summation of the problems with it. Uh I liked it less than you did. I think it's a really gorgeous film, uh most of it being like static, uh like almost like watercolor paintings, um, with limited animation. It seems like a movie that was made with a lot of skill and very little money. Uh, which is oftentimes some of the more interesting experiments in film. Uh, it saves a lot of its animation for like later sequences that like delve into pure psychedelia, which is great. Uh, it made me realize I need to watch more movies like that because I enjoy that sort of stuff. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. Like I feel like like I knew what I was getting into. It's a '70s movie from Japan, so it's going to have at least one rape in it. Uh, <laughs> I I feel like it's not super. Uh, graphic in the way that like a pink film would be or something which is good but uh you know a grain of salt if you seek this one out but i i, I do oh yeah i i did have a, I, I do think it's really fascinating uh i think there's a lot there um even if it's not fully coherent in what it's trying to say uh it's at least Whoa. a ride while you're experiencing it yeah it's nice one of those movies that like I'm really glad I saw it but I I couldn't just recommend it to anybody but I just loved it to pieces it, it was just so strange and unique and I just I love a good uh lady meets satan uh love story <laughs> are there you a lot would. of those yeah, more than you'd think cool Cool, cool, cool. Uh, I uh, saw, unfortunately, I saw Steve Jobs. <laughs> unfortunately? Unfortunately. <sighs> so, Steve Jobs uh, is, you know, found, one of the founders of Apple, uh, died recently, and there have been multiple movies now um, made about his life. This is the... Uh, one from last year, um, from Danny Boyle directing, Aaron Sorkin writing. Uh, I have a complicated relationship with Aaron Sorkin in that I've seen pretty much everything he's done, and like a lot of it is very, very uh, uh, important to me. But he's also awful, uh, and has got either like in a kind of like two. Uh, lines on a line graph going in different directions i have grown up and he has done the opposite in his work uh and so steve jobs is just one of the most baffling movies um that i've seen specifically due to its ending which i'm going to spoil now if that's not something people want then i won't does do people have objections i, no, I you inflicted this we all know how it YouTube, is so i've seen it <laughs> yes yep uh so I'll just describe the movie. The movie is about Steve Jobs being an asshole, and he's an asshole to everyone for the entire film, and that's fine. And I'm like, this, like, the movie knows he's an asshole, right? This, this is what the movie is. Um, 
which I, I thought was almost true. I couldn't tell. So I was kind of enjoying it. The Sorkin banter was fine for the majority of the movie. But then the ending is one of the single worst endings in a movie I've ever seen in that uh, this has been 90 straight minutes of Steve Jobs like being horrible to everyone. Like He denies... Um, Wozniak any credit for anything ever he like constantly says he's the greatest person greatest genius creator alive uh he consistently treats his uh marketing like the marketing lead like his, his secretary and like trash all the time and for 20 years he doesn't acknowledge that his daughter is his daughter or like give her the money and support that she needs um and that's the the movie and that's uh like set against like he cares so much about his work he cares so much about his work uh and then the the climax of this is obviously the reconciliation with his daughter and in a movie that was fictional um what would happen is he would throw away the company and uh decide his daughter was more important because he's so concerned with apple being the best thing in the world that he pushes everyone away and if you were trying to do this catharsis in a like in a like organically from the story he would have to drop that in order to actually make the reconciliation work and have any emotion whatsoever instead what happens is he just walks up to her says i'm gonna make an ipod for you and then what sounds like a coldplay song but is in fact a maccabees song plays it goes soft focus and he goes on stage to launch the mac and everyone's like yes steve jobs you are the greatest of them all just uh slow motion lights blinking it's one of the worst things i've ever seen i was so mad and i realized that the movie expected that all along i was meant to feel sympathy for this awful billionaire who did nothing but uh, abuse everyone around him and i was meant to be happy when he did one nice thing for one person once he literally gave them something that went out of date in two years (laughs) <laughs> no, no, he walks up to her and is like, I'm going to put a thousand songs in your pocket. And you're like, he did the iPhone for her. And I'm like, no. Oh, that's even worse. <laughs> yeah, no. Uh, I made him watch this. It was rude of me. Because <laughs> originally you were like, no, don't, I'm never going to watch this. And then you just didn't believe me. So uh, that's how the movie ends? That's the. I can link you to it. You can witness it for your own self. Sure. I just think it's weird that that's like considered his greatest. Uh, well, never mind. Whatever. I mean, really, it's no one. I mean, Steve Jobs was luckily like not very well received. It was received better than I received it, but I don't think it's considered a good movie. Oh no, no, no! That's not what I meant. I just meant looking at his literal career. It's weird that that's how the movie ended. I don't know. It was a weird, uh, weird movie. Well, I, 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 I didn't. I was not interested in it in the least. So, yeah. but wow. Yeah. It left me cold. I don't. I, I saw it with a friend who didn't really go to movies that often, and we had very different, I guess, approaches. Um, but I remember like the, the whole building up of him being an a hole and like him being so deeply unsympathetic and then having the rug pulled out under me i was like why are you doing that like why (laughs) so it was one of those aaron sorkin great man pictures and i like wasn't sure how self-aware of the fact self-aware the film was that it was that thing yeah that was it was not it was mostly not a very pleasant experience although formally i thought it was very lovely Mm -hmm. oh wait no that's a lie there was some weird projection stuff that was stupid (laughs) yeah uh 
Well, it's a, it's um a story he's done many times before. It's the it's it it's basically the same story as everyone's uh, as the popularly considered best episode of the West Wing, the season two finale of that, uh, which has a similar premise of butler is uh like doing the wrong thing consistently all the time always and the moment he does the right thing is like a big cheesy everyone cheer uh ending and it works there and there's just no like i really like i was thinking why don't i like this because this like i should theoretically enjoy an ending where uh instead of building up through like different um decision throughout the movie it like places the entire catharsis on one moment that should be really effective but it doesn't earn it at all and like i've just thought through my head and thought to, uh of the logic of the emotional beats and it was just the most confused thing and i, I thought that was very sad because uh yeah so that that was my steve jobs experience now was- i don't have to watch think about aaron sorkin again until i don't know whenever he's writing now comes out it must just be one of those things where it's like they're, you're expected to make a movie about this guy because he was so famous and so rich, and then when you look at his life, you're like, oh, we have to make a movie about him? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Maybe that's the situation that's like, I just did the best I could with the dick that I had to make the movie about. <laughs> I, I mean, <laughs> to be fair, Aaron Sorkin, he uh, can, is perfectly capable of making up really uninteresting dicks to make movies like this about. Yeah, I've seen I, all of the newsroom. And I Don't hear he's me. not that great of a person himself. Have you seen Sports Night? I ha- Sports Night's great. Sports Night's one of the better ones. Uh, I Sports Night's like... good because... Oh, you go. Did you see the documentary, um, The Machine and the Man or whatever? The No. That is not a good documentary. It does. Like, I do not think a good thing can be made about Steve Jobs because Steve Jobs, I don't think, is inherently interesting. Like, a yeah, lot of people I think, think he's that's interesting. That's the problem. Like, yep. Like, I it, just, I think the, people want him to be interesting, but I just don't. Some people just weren't interesting. <laughs> culture, his cultural legacy, so to speak, is more interesting than he is as a person. Like, he's just an, he's just another white asshole. And they got plenty enough movies about those. Uh, the best thing about Steve Jobs is when Tyler Perry in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2 lists him among, like, Isaac Newton of people who will be footnotes compared to him. Oh, that's right. I forgot about that. That was good. Good movie. That was good. Oh, I like that movie Tyler so Perry much. is good. Tyler Perry's a treasure. I know. Maybe okay. he'll stop making movies and just keep acting in them, and I'll be happy like, with him. I like Kate Winslet in it. She's great. I wish she was given literally anything to do. Because uh, she's like the lead uh, marketer of Apple, and she's written like she's Donna, uh, who is the character in The West Wing, who is Josh's secretary. Like, every bit of... Um, Ask Jobs Jenny? And, uh, no. No, that's um, CJ. Uh, Donna is Josh's secretary, and all of the dialogue in this film reads, uh, like, between those two is like a, just a extended Donna and Josh skit. Wasting uh, Kate Winslet should be a crime. I know. And he does. He does. Right, that's enough me moaning about Aaron Sorkin. Kyle. Oh, I, f- I forgot to say the name oh. of the director of Belladonna of Sadness after I, like, broke the podcast to get the name. Iichi Yamamoto. Okay. Who is known cool. for psychedelic, smutty animated films. And Astro Boy? <laughs> <laughs> che- checks out. <laughs> well, uh... Kyle was choosing the movie this month. Yeah, we watched it. 
Would you this, like to give us an introduction? This month, we watched The Bitter Tears of Petrifound Kant by Reiner Werner, Reiner Werner Fassbinder, and I hope after we can also talk about movies about sadomasochism. Um, the Bitter Tears of Petrifound Kant is about a um, a very demanding, um, respected, I guess, fashion designer that falls in love with her with someone who could be her muse i think she does end up becoming her muse to some degree and the relationship that the two have that the the entire film is set uh in in um petra's uh apartment the relationship the two have is like very tempestuous and it's a lot of unrequited feelings and i guess cruelty a lot of emotional cruelty so it's totally my jam i loved it i had to rewatch. i had to, to watch it twice because i fell asleep um in the middle of it because it's a very demanding pace um it's part of the cruelty of the film is not only the, between the characters and how they treat one another because petra also has this um this secretary slash maid who lives with her to whom she's terrible to and the maid probably has some uh feelings for her as well um but part of the the cruelty of the film is the pace it's a very demanding film it is does it takes its sweet time um but i think that's that's to its advantage i thought it was very interesting and i picked this film because i'd like to get more into fast Reader's work and it's lgbt pride month lgbt plus lgbtq pride month thing that month month and I want to it's Pride. Pride month. I, yeah. I shouldn't say that. I was just tripping over my words because I often talk to people who are usually straight. And if they're not straight, they're usually like white gay men who complain about the number of letters. So queer Pride Month, just going to go with that. That'll be easier. Um, yeah. Hmm. I'm sorry that you uh deal with so many jerks yeah it sounds like a bad time I'm yeah sorry. no no this is just like in general it's not like specific to here but mm. okay um i'm gonna go first because i have a couple of questions mm. but uh, first i'll just say i did not like the movie i thought that i don't know where people are getting the sadomasochism because i just thought that was just not there for me but that's okay um i after reading that it was based on a play that he wrote a while back before the movie um it made a lot more sense to me the way the dialogue works and the way the setting worked um how you're in this crappy apartment uh that i found kind of like weirdly romantic because i'm still that person that looks at movies set in europe and movies from europe and just goes everybody just had these like crappy apartments but they're so much nicer than where i live and um anyway i didn't like it because well no first i'll get to my questions uh one what where do you see the snm in this film because i know that like everybody says that the way the dynamic between Petra and the maid. What's her name? Karen? Mm. No. Karen's the name of the muse. Um, What's her name? Anyway. Marlene? 
Yes. Marlene, yes. Marlene. Uh so everybody says it's Marlene because Marlene leaves when she is given freedom because she liked being treated like crap. But I just don't, I don't know. That just did not read at all to me. I, th- I th- We'll go into that. I think that's the first thing to go into, but I think we'll just go around uh, with me and M first and then we'll dive into that question. Okay. Well, and then also, I guess that was really my only question because that's like the number one thing that people say when this movie comes up and I just... It just didn't read that way for me. And now that I'm further away from it, I'm really sad because I wish we could have recorded it sooner because I had more coherent feelings about why I thought Marlene, uh, Marlene uh, reacted the way she did. Um, but yeah, it just it did not work for me. Um, the, the best thing about this movie was all the crazy outfits. Uh, which was also my favorite thing about. I, I like how Fassbender. I've only seen two two of his movies, uh, but I like how he always kinds of makes women look like just makeup. Just like remember the episode of The Simpsons where Homer invents the makeup gun, and he shoots Marge in the face with it. Like they all just like that, and then they just have these like insane fashions and that was like the one thing i really liked about this film but other than that it just kind of left me bored i was really really bored Mm -hmm. Uh, i was kind of the same i um i found the first hour of this movie like almost unwatchably boring um uh because it was mostly just people going, here is a thing that happened to me. Here is my very uh, long thematic monologue about what this says about being sad. And it doesn't dramatize anything until the third scene when it kind of picked up a bit, when it was all about the like actual uh, shifting dynamics. There was a little bit in that in the second scene, but it was such a foregone conclusion uh, that there wasn't any tension there. Uh, but when... Um, uh, uh, Petra and Kareen um, are together and that, that third scene where it's all about their shifting power dynamics going from um, them together to uh, Kareen leaving uh, was like suddenly like oh there's there's something happening here and then it made me retroactively even more annoyed with the first hour that just uh, monologue set up in your face and then like, um, go on yeah. sorry uh, oh, oh no, that's really all I had and and then also I, I don't get any like I I find the S&M because I went and did some reading on it and I found the this movie is about an S&M relationship I found that like really off-putting because it no it's about abuse I don't know like I feel like equating those two uh in the ways that I had seen wasn't it didn't it sat wrong with me uh and so yeah I don't know I, I like I don't understand that at all I just I just didn't feel like oh the, Petra she just didn't like the relationship with her and Karen didn't seem very it seemed like something that she had done a bunch of times over and over mm-hmm. so I didn't believe like I didn't find it very believable that sh- this was the one that broke her you know yeah and also well, I don't know it just go on if I don't disagree that it's this sounds like a dynamic that she's been in before but i think that would add, personally add to the reading that there's a sadomasochistic element there because it's the kind wait of between her and karen like, or between her and between her and Marlene. other people mm. yeah i just 
I don't know. It just was not there for me. Uh, what? Well, uh, I'll just ask uh, M what they thought before we like really dive into this. So I don't want to jump on the trio pile of saying this movie is really boring. Um, even though maybe that's where I probably would have gone if this was a discussion between me and Kyle. Um, I think for <laughs> me, uh, the question becomes like if this is a movie. Uh, about the cruelty inflicted out of like a desire for something that someone else can't provide. I'm just not entirely sure why the film wants to imbue Petra herself as like the point of view character, because I have a really hard time looking at her actions and her motivations and finding them like, not just uh, like I'm fine with an unsympathetic character, but I like part of it is this is a movie made in the seventies, but I also find these motivations like really uninteresting. Like the, 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 queerest character in a setting pining for someone who's like willing to entertain it as far as it gets her ahead uh but isn't actually willing to like commit fully to me feels like very much like a trope in queer culture at this point and so like watching that play out like i've i I, like that shit my friends are doing in high school like right yes (laughs) thank you that's what it is it's like that was just that Go on, so, sorry. So imbuing that kind of, like, to what to me is, like, a very juvenile, like, like melodramatic situation with all of the, like, languid, decadent decay of, like, a, like, a, um, like, a La Boheme style, like, we're just gonna be in beautiful gowns in bed, uh, like, sweating and drinking our way through life as we, like, slowly waste away. Like, it's all very glamorous and it's all very droll. And I, like, I wonder if it's just a problem of the culture gap where I don't, I don't, like, I don't think the initial premise is elicited enough to make the, like, interplay between the people juicy. Um So Petra just becomes a character who's going through these motions that, like, if she's actually been entertaining multiple, like, young muses or models for, like, decades, as, like, I think the film pretty much implies, then I feel like she shouldn't be falling for this, like, junior high bullshit at this point. Like, she should, act like, either actually be, like, a weird spider woman who's luring these women in and, like, getting what she wants out of them, or be someone who has, like, real emotional resonance with people, but instead she ends up literally becoming a petulant child who has to, like, she falls in bed and cries to her mother at the end of the film, and it just doesn't jive with what the character is in the rest of the film. Um, so, like, for me, the film was mostly... Uh, enjoyable in that i really liked marlene's point of view and the way that she is positioned as like she does a lot of emoting without ever speaking and i think her Mm -hmm. like stoicism speaks volumes about the situation uh i like i don't think that character like getting a full voice would like make her more interesting because like i said i don't think the situation is particularly interesting but it's a small slice of enjoyment to carve out of a film that is otherwise like to me really ponderous uh, and uh, like trite at this point, uh, which isn't to say that it isn't like, I think it's really well shot. It's really beautiful. And I like the stuff with Marlene. I think the last like five minutes of that film is genuinely like uh, funny and moving in a way that I wish the rest of the film was to me um, because Marlene should have fucking packed up a long time ago when she wasn't like i like the i like that the film doesn't make it about she's had enough but makes it that she would that petra would deign to choose her last after her life is entirely fallen apart like invalidates all of the efforts marlene has made in suffering through this thing 
Um, I don't think that necessarily equates to sadomasochism. I think that's like a very straight way of reading what sadomasochism is. Uh, but uh, like I said, it's hard to say in a film that's this old what comes out of the culture and what is like an inherent fault of the film because like what it means to be in like maybe an S&M relationship or maybe even just a gay relationship is a lot different than 1972 Germany than it is in 2016 America. So like, I'm trying to be sympathetic to that. Uh, but no, I don't know. I, I didn't take away a lot of joy from this film, uh, outside of its ending. Um, but it, it didn't like put me off Aspen or anything. So it's not like I regretted watching it. Uh, I, I think I see why people like really glom onto it, but I was unable to do so. I guess like uh, if, the no, mo- that's the problem. Can, the, uh, can Kyle the, go ahead? I want to hear Kyle. Yeah, sorry. Oh no, I'm sorry. Um, I am mostly in agreement with M. Um, I, I don't really disagree with anything you said, but I think the high the the trite high school aspect. I would like to investigate more into this because it seems to be. It, as you said, very much a trope within queer stories. Like, Giovanni's Room is very similar, I think. Um, I was just but, about to bring that up. By James Baldwin. And I'm, like, I really, I don't want to make any generalizations, but I wonder, like, why is this a thing that continues to show up in stories about queer people and queer relationships? And uh, I am, like... I joke that I'm an emotional masochist, but I really do get a weird kick out of watching movies and experiencing stories about people being terrible to one another in relationships, and that's probably not healthy, but, like, I love... I I really like this kind of story for some reason. I, I really liked Gone Girl. I really liked this. Um, I really liked The Lobster. Just kind of the very... Just very unfortunate um, power dynamics. And... I guess it's weirdly paradoxical, um, but I, yeah, I don't know. I don't disagree with, I don't totally disagree with it, anything anyone has said. I guess I just got more enjoyment out of it. Um, I, this is not something I like watch with any kind of frequency because it is, it is very. It's not a fun thing to watch, and I guess boring is a word that could be described could be used to describe it it's just that it wasn't necessarily boring to me the entire time and i don't disagree that it's some, sometimes a little ponderous i don't think as far as my experience with both queer cinema and uh reiner fan or fastbender goes this is not my favorite thing that i've watched in either category i much prefer like the marriage of maria brown or something um but i don't know those are just i guess thoughts. i guess I, um when it comes to like the uh boring thing and uh, there's particularly like the dynamics of the characters is what i would say is that i like i know i have enjoyed many movies about characters like behaving awfully to each other and like in the past like there's lots of movies like that i'm trying to like put my finger on why like gone girl and like this one and everything um like don't hit and why other movies do and i think that the uh the answer is that in the ones in which the the resonate with me the like sadness or pain or whatever it is in someone's life that is actually causing the need for that behavior has to be uh like like dramatized and like present and believable like i like for the this movie to work i have to be convinced and on um uh 
Petra's side as she goes uh, on this disastrous path, and I'm not because uh, I know it's a disaster from the start, and I don't even I don't feel with her well, that I should be doing this because the movie doesn't actually like the movie doesn't show anything like doesn't take you th- apart from like broadly monologuing it. The movie doesn't actually go through the things in her life in a dramatic way that would connect you to that drive. So well, it just presents. I, it well, like, I mean, the context I mean, of this is. It is very stagey. I think, yeah, it's about them talking to one another. Like it, the 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 conversation between girlfriends is the the way that you get the context. And I think that actually, like, it, it sadly it doesn't really work. But like, mm. I think the intent is very much to try to like take take you through like her crappy marriage and her feelings about um like how she got where she was in her business and what her business means to her and you you learn that she's like this really strong person so it would take a lot to break her so like it's and it's also one of those i don't know like the tragedy is built in because of the title so when you see this really strong character you're like okay well how does she get to the bitter tears um i I just don't think it's executed very well so i think kyle do you want to go ahead I just want a uh, quick thing. I also think that, like, not necessarily everything that's said in the film is true because the essay that's included with the with the Criterion release it's called it's something like role play or something, or I don't remember the Great Pretender. It's called the Great Pretender, and I, I think, think I read that. I read that after of, we watched it. Part of the Sorry. film. Um, no, 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 it's okay. Um, part of the film is is certain aspects of performativity. Like I, the, she's trying on different wigs, she's wearing different clothing, she's changing her appearance to some degree, and I th- think um, like the idea that Destiny suggested that she could have gone through this dynamic multiple times. I think that in those previous scenarios, if that is a reading that we take, she could have just been as likely to be broken down, and this is just something that she goes through over and over again. I think that that's is actually also... kind of interesting on its face. Going back to like what you said about com- yeah. comparing it to like Giovanni's room and these sort of situations where it's like, well, we kind of have no choice but to be in a world of hurt. Mm-hmm. Um, it's upsetting that. Oh, sorry. Go on. Uh, you can go ahead if you have more. I just wanted to say it's upsetting because, like historically, I know why that's the trope. I know why that's the trope. It's because society expects you to settle down get married have kids and if that's not your life then there's no examples of just living happily ever after so these characters i'm not going to use real people because i don't actually know but like um and i've heard stories of happily ever after in real life with you know historically queer couples but like um in fiction i think it's just the the viewpoint of it's you know in the example of this movie she like what else did, she doesn't see her life going any other way like this is the only way i can get to be with someone so i i get that like i get why she puts up with it because she thinks it's the only way anyone will bear with her it's just um for me, it's just not executed in a way that I found interesting. Like, if this movie had been sold to me probably as something other than an S&M story, and more about just, like, this 
movie of people being awful to each other, I probably would have taken it in better. But that says more like that's just more about my own expectations versus what actually I watched. This is your Zootopia. Yeah, yes, exactly. uh, Good point. Um, You had something to say. So uh, the thing that I was thinking about as I was watching it and coming out of the other side is how much my feelings about this movie contrast my feelings for uh, A Doll's House with the Ibsen play, um, which I think Mm -hmm. like broadly touches on some of the same themes. The Ibsen play, if you don't know, is about uh, this long suffering wife of like a, a banker or finance guy. I don't remember exactly. And as she comes to grips with like being her own person, like the ways in which she brings her family to like emotional ruin and ends up separating from them and defining herself as a person, um, and it's interesting cause I, I really like that play a lot. Um, but it's power dynamic is much more traditional. Uh, it was written, you know, like a hundred years earlier than this. Um, and they, but it ha- expresses itself in the same way through like the attitudes of the women in a scene, like describing their positions and point of views, uh, through the authorship of men, but without like a real good, good grasp on what their interior life actually is. Um, and that's not necessarily like, it's a broader problem, but I think it's a problem in appreciating a work per se. Uh, the introversion that, uh, Fassbender has like different than just the queerness of it is that your sympathetic character is also the one with all the power in any scene, uh, like traditional power in that she is rich and she owns the house and she is the most emotionally dominant and the film in like a very like postmodern, like that doesn't like in a world in which like i don't know about fastbender's other films but this film is expressly seemingly interested in like the foibles of like a wealthy set uh it it, br- it brings out the point that that doesn't necessarily equal like actual emotional power in the way that she's brought to ruin and like like almost infantilized by the end of the film where she's like kicking plates on the floor like a child um and like i said i think that's what's interesting i'm I, I, examining where it falls apart for me is the like interesting part because I don't actually know the answer to that. Um, why I attach to one and not the other. I think on some level it ends up at, like Kyle, you described it as really difficult. I think maybe it just asks too much to sympathize with this character and also do that work of exploring her interior life that's not in the film or her past that it alludes to. Um, and at the same time, like the catharsis it gives you has almost nothing to do with her. Um, and has all, exactly. everything to do with such a marginal character that like dominates the heart of the film, but because that heart isn't your main cat, like your main duo, that ends up being the disconnect. Where it's like, oh, I, I'd much rather the film be about Marlene. But the truth is, like, if the film was about Marlene, it would be a much worse film. And like those two things existing in my in my brain, like, mean that my and my feelings about this are like more, mostly frustrated. That I have a hard time picking apart exactly why the film doesn't work because on paper, the way you describe it and the way that it is, like, there's a lot of stuff here that I do traditionally like and respond to. I just maybe if Karen were a more interesting character, because like you can see right through her, and that makes it even more frustrating. And maybe we're supposed to be taking on that observer Marlene type role when we look at her interactions with her. Because that is just, like, if this is the central, you know, uh, conflict for this woman, that character is just not, she's got nothing compared to, like, 
every other character in the film, even the best friend that comes by and gives her that weird doll, was more interesting to me than her. Because at least that woman has, like, you know, she's constantly defending her marriage. She's uh, got this strange socialite vibe, and she likes to gossip, and you don't understand why she's friends with this woman. But then it's like, well, yeah, because they're all rich, and they're just friends because they're rich, and that's where they ended up. And she feels kind of sorry for her because she got, you know, the guy, and poor Petra didn't. And, um... And then you've got the daughter who's in love with this weird boy that looks like Mick Jagger. And <laughs> she uh, She's kind of awkward and she loves her mother very much, but she's just like, you know, she's got to do her own thing. And she's sent off to this boarding school and we all know it's because Petra doesn't like responsibility. But in her mind, it's just like, well, this is where I'm meant to be. But she's also, she keeps making these comments about how like, she calls her bourgeois about something at some point. I don't remember the exact interaction. But, like, there's a lot. Like, I could watch a whole movie just about her interacting with her kid. Uh, and the mother even has a lot going on, too. And in her dialogue, like, you, you instantly kind of understand her. And it, it's just sad that Karen who's like kind of the linchpin isn't given the same treatment. I don't know. Do you think that Karen is basically a manic pixie dream girl? Um, mm, I won't go that far. I, I think it's cause it's cause she doesn't, Petra doesn't get anything out of that relationship aside from like pleasure, like, like physical pleasure and aesthetics, you know? So I don't think that her life is enriched by Karen. And I don't think that... And, and you know, just the ending kind of... If we're going by that classical, <laughs> quote-unquote, definition of the manic pixie dream girl, I don't think she is at all. I just think she's just not a very well-written character. I, I wouldn't go so far as to call her, un, like, poorly written. I think that she exists in the play as an abstraction more than she does an actual person, though. Uh, for sure, mm-hmm. which makes it hard to grab onto her. Like, there's stuff at the beginning about her childhood, but in a lot of ways, that entire scene is more about how Petra responds to those, like, those statements Stories. as a way to, yeah. like, bring her in and cultivate her power over her than it is anything about, uh, Karen herself. Her is a, yeah. Yeah. And as such, she ends up being, like, a stand in for the very idea of, like, young alluring person who might be into you but is maybe isn't and has other baggage that will pull them away it feels like the amalgamation of someone's experiences with multiple like exes compiled into a person that ends up lacking that specificity because as much as you might like i might argue that like i wish i had more input into the interior life of petra or don't find her particularly uh, sympathetic as someone I want to see on screen, her life is very, very specific. And, like, the lack of that with Karen, I think, comes through a lot in how that interplay just doesn't work for me. Mm. Oh, I had something. Um, I feel like I read that he made this movie either right after a divorce or a breakup or something, so that might have something to do with it. This apparently was based on his obsession with an actor. Okay, thank you. That's what it was. Yeah, because I read The Great Pretender, too, and I think it's mentioned in that. 
if I'm mm. not mistaken. Yeah. Uh, by the way, great soundtrack this movie. Whenever it had a pop song in it, it was a good one. I've been debating whether to include Smoke Gets in Your Eyes on a mixtape. It's a great song, you should. I have a question for everyone. Sure. Before, before we get into um, more emotionally cruel movies. but So I have seen a trend of mostly white gay male writers trying to examine why certain actress icons, um, I guess, occupy a certain space of reverence within gay male subculture, and the essays are mostly terrible, because, like, they, they're both too reverential and also, like, don't seem to understand the appeal or are not able to articulate it very well, and um, my, I don't know if it works with this film, but but I thought that the antidote to that, or to attempt to examine why certain actresses like, I don't know, Naomi Watts, Kate Blanchett, Hannah Shugula, um, Juliette Binoche, etc., have such a, um, a role within gay male subculture, is to examine the, the queer directors that, that employ them, that, that utilize them, and f- are heavily featured within their filmographies. And I'm wondering, do you think that would be an interesting thing to investigate as to trying to get at why certain actresses are able to occupy that space or to ascend to that kind of iconography? I think there's a, and this is going to sound weird, but like when Judy Garland was like doing her, was it Carnegie Hall uh, shows? Yes. When Judy Garland was doing those. I think it was either Time Magazine or Life Magazine was interviewing her, and they kept making all these, like, really rude allusions to the fact that there were a lot of gay guys there, <laughs> and they tried to, like, ask her in this roundabout way, 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 why did she think that she had so many gay fans? And, um, I, I, think, I think there's just, like, this shared link to suffering and tragedy that like femininity kind of carries and I think that in the culture that was really binary and repressed and saw everything as kind of coded male or female what have you like it's really easy for that to carry over generations, especially when your culture is all made. Like, your culture isn't coming mm-hmm. out of... I don't know what I'm trying to say. Like, you kind no, of... No, no, it's, const- it's constructed out of a need because it didn't exist. Exactly. And it's also coming out of pop culture because there's no... You know, because it's constructed, it's coming out of a lot of pop culture. So it's like, you know somebody is queer because they have that record or that Mm -hmm. color t-shirt, you know? And that just doesn't, it doesn't really exist anymore except in these, like what does carry over. I've noticed at least in my personal sort of not even research of this, but just observation, just living my life. I think it's just like that sort of, there aren't any male actors who imbue the 
suffering, the tragedy of that that loneliness of um, looking for love and not having a place on the power structure. Mm-hmm. And then you see these actresses and like they've all got that in common. Like you're Marilyn Monroe's, you're Julianne Moore's, you know? I mean, mm-hmm. I'm not saying like I'm mixing fantasy and reality here, if you know what I mm-hmm. mean, yeah. when I use these examples. But like, at least in my summation, like I, uh, if I'm being like general, that's kind of what I get, or what I glean. Does that make sense to anyone? I'm, I'm, I hope I'm not being yeah. Okay. I, I think also those those actresses have a tendency to to play others within their films, like Julianne Moore in Safe uh, and Far From Heaven, um, Isabelle Huppert in uh, The Piano Teacher. I think that like, feeling of being the other is very integral. Yes, exactly. Like, um, have you ever seen Gentlemen Prefer Blondes? Yes. Like, Jane Russell steals that movie, and, like, a lot of people say, like, she was the gay man in that movie. And I think it's because you don't, like, she gets to verbalize their desire in within that very specific context. She's always the one complaining about, like, is there anyone here for love, you know? And she gets to say the sassy thing about the muscular guys at the pool or the tennis team or whatever it was. And, like, that, I don't know, that, that like, shared vulnerability and expression just kind of carried over. And I don't know. I don't think that that's going to last as, uh, I don't know. Like, do you guys think that, um, that's something that's gonna, like, be an enduring thing as culture becomes more, like, accepting of, of, like, uh, well, specifically just homosexuality? So, I think that, like, yes and no. So, I think that the icons that people gravitate to will eventually become codified in a way. Like, I don't think there's ever going to be a version of, like, male gayness that doesn't include Judy Garland at this point. Um, like, whether or not an individual has it is different than the culture, because the mm-hmm. culture now has stopped being constructed by successive generations that get wiped out and starts becoming a thing that thrives on its own. Uh, like, you can have three generations of gay men that are in communication in the modern era in a way that probably hasn't existed in, like, literally thousands of years in, like, a real way. Um, well, that's... But, the... I, let me... Let, oh, sorry, so, sorry, sorry. But also, because the idea of, like... So, we'll, not only will that be true, but also, like, actual gay icons that are gay themselves that don't need, like, a, a level of abstraction... Um, yeah, will come to exist... But as always for the individuals, what people respond to and identify with will cover all of the spectrum. Like you can be gay and still identify with things that aren't like for the gay experience. And I think that's like an important part of this too, where like if enough in, especially like a really small vocal community, like, like gay cinephiles in like a time in which that stuff was just now just getting out there the things individuals might have preferred that weren't like explicitly queer coded end up getting incredibly signal boosted and become like mouthpieces for a community that is forming around those individuals who are making those statements to begin with like like 
if you look at Twitter, like professional wrestling is the queerest shit on earth. But that's not actually true <laughs> when you watch wrestling. It's just because of the weird slice of demographic that we look at. Like it seems like, oh, wrestling's like super fucking gay. And it's really not. But that's how it feels like when these people who identify a certain way end up latching onto something is like, this is what I identify with and that these are my icons. But I wouldn't go out there and say like fucking Vince McMahon's a gay icon or anything. Uh <laughs> Uh, but yeah, no, it's the most I, ludicrous thing you've ever said. I know, and yet, but and yet, there have been essays that are that are proclaiming Julianne Moore as gay icon. Like, but um, but I think I get, but I think that sorry. like that sort of like because that follows it's, the trend of there used to be Hollywood women who became gay icons, and thus we see the mode in which we turn those things into gay icons for a new generation. Yes, and that's kind of what I okay. was saying. Yeah, and I don't like. I think that's okay, but I think. It's it's, it's easy to fall into a trap of like identifying the things that the people who survived and wrote the histories did as the way that it has to be done. Um right cuz we've got gay actresses who are out and it's weird to ignore that in the and then go well Julian Moore. But I think I think all of us here as like queer people will readily say like we don't just like things that are for gay people or for queer people. Uh, right. And it, like, it's important to note that like a gay fan base or audience doesn't necessarily designate someone as for the queers. Look at Katy Perry's career for crying out loud. Ugh. Like, isn't that amazing that somebody who like started out making a homophobic song or two, like totally worshipped in the gay community as far as like Don't certain segments. It. Do not understand it. But it's there, you know, and it's, um, and you know, and I think it comes out of that thing where it's like, when you're coming out of a place where you're, it's it's, it's the individual thing, kind of. I don't know. I feel like I'm I'm losing my point every time I open my mouth. But I think that one one thing I was going to say about the online community is that like the nice thing is that lonely kid who. Um, oh, 70 years ago would have found The Wizard of Oz now has Twitter and can actually talk to actual gay people and, uh, you know, like, they they can still have The Wizard of Oz, but they can, like, speak to actual gay people and, uh, with the internet, interact with culture that's just from all over and and it's, that's, like, the interesting thing. I don't know. Uh, and, and learn about instead of like this shared pain like in the past it's more about like oh we get to see examples of people like me who are succeeding and people like me who are c- complex and not just this one thing which I feel like for I mean I don't know if everybody here has seen the celluloid closet but like that that yeah. fictional timeline uh, or, or let me reword it that timeline of tragedy that you get through pop culture in that movie, it just, it won't exist in the same way for people because it's not going to be all tragedy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I think that was a good talk. I think uh, I'm going to step in and be hostly and say that we need to move on now. Oh, did we get into the ending in the way that we wanted? Was that satisfying? Uh, the ending of Petra Von Count? Yeah. 
Okay. Yeah, I think we I think we covered the film. I think we've right. it was a I good just discussion that wanted to, to make places. sure because I know that was earlier. We were like, we'll talk about that. Okay. Uh, I know that um, Kyle wants to talk about other films about uh, like these kinds of relationships and power dynamics. Uh, so we'll do a little bit of that and then we'll wrap up. Uh, but yeah, I think which uh, like Kyle, go ahead with your choices, I guess, and we'll like do a little bit of that now. Um, I. <laughs> We talked about it, um, I think, the last episode, or was it the episode before? But Gone Girl, I I enjoyed Gone Girl. <laughs> They're about It's about terrible people being terrible to one another, and for some reason, I think that's a lot of fun. And then The Lobster. Um, the Lobster's uh, by Yorgos Lanthimos, for some reason, strikes me very personally, because it's about... It is about people who are um kind of more forthright in a in a way that i don't think um ever plays out in reality um as far as my experience goes at least um but they but just because they're forthright it doesn't mean that they're necessarily more honest than they would be in in outside of lanthimos's vision and i think that's a really interesting dynamic the kind of deadpan um presentation of one's emotions or ideas um and yet there's still kind of um an inherent need to protect oneself um from and from an emotional hurt even though logistically they need to couple up even though there is this deep pressure deep societal societally and institutionally ingrained pressure to do to be in a in a relationship i just think that's the kind of um very that that kind of mean approach to the way that relationships can operate and, and the way that dating can operate i i just found very appealing and then having that juxtaposed against the self-righteousness of of loners in that film um i thought was fun and i think it's unironically a very romantic film because it transitions between jumping back and forth between these different um these different rule rule written i mean um rule-based worlds or societies to an to a, a little bit of a romantic comedy um and it's this test of like one's personal uh one's personal uh i guess con- morals or conventions i don't know what word i'm looking for but mm-hmm. <sighs> I don't know. I, I think it's a a, a fun, a fun, cruel movie. Cool. Uh, has anyone else got any? I guess oh, I've got one. Uh, I really like Young Adult. Ah, I love that one. Young Adult's excellent. Um, convictions, it, personal convictions. Sorry. <laughs> uh, young Adult <laughs> is one of my favorite movies of just someone utterly and entirely destroying their life and then like not learning anything but how beautiful that ability to not learn anything kind of is uh and uh, like it's it's fantastic god i love young adult i should watch that again i haven't watched it in years it's a great movie it's a great movie um i'm just gonna lay out for the jury the entire filmography of mr todd solens uh if that's how you say his last name uh People are just, and not even in the context of romantic relationships, just every relationship, just brutality, just utter, 
hopelessness and brutality, and I love it. Um, I don't even understand why half the time. And he just seems like the kind of person... I don't know it, well, who who hurt him or what his <laughs> parents did to him, but he seems to make every movie from this viewpoint of just like, everyone is horrible and they'll never get better and there's no hope. And somehow these are like some of the funniest movies and some of the most cringe, cringy social interactions. Uh, namely, I'm thinking of happiness and... <laughs> A movie that I don't even like thinking about, which I absolutely loved, uh, Palindromes, which I had the pleasure of seeing when I was very young, and he had a Q&A afterwards, and people were so preoccupied with asking him about pedophilia and <laughs> the age of consent and things that, it, very, like, tangent, tangent, tangential things, <laughs> Tangential. Yes, thank you. Things about the movie and not what the movie's actually about. But he just seems to love putting his characters through the ringer emotionally and sometimes physically. And I find it compelling. And I just, I can't think of anybody else who matches him in that, that nihilism. But like the joy that comes with it too. It's, it's super strange and kind of gross. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Adam, do you have any uh, any movies here? Uh, you know, I don't think I don't think I do. Uh, that's fine. Yeah, no, I could go into reasons why I don't, but it's not really worth getting into. This is already a long enough podcast. Uh, yep. Yeah. Uh, we didn't so do it. I guess that's almost it. I know what to do. Don't worry. Uh, we uh. Uh, like, we have a movie for next month. Uh, Do we have any questions? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> Don't do me like that. <laughs> you knew what you were doing. <laughs> Fuck off. <laughs> God damn it. What are we watching next month, huh? What are we watching next month? So I decided that instead of one movie, I would pick two movies. Uh, I don't even know how, if Destiny or Kyle... Now how much would you pay? Uh, if Destiny or Kyle... Uh, twice as much as they're paying now is what the answer is, of course. <laughs> it's fine podcast. I don't know if Destiny and Kyle yep. have seen these, but I am going to pick uh, the Kenneth Anger duo of Inauguration of the Pleasure Dome and Lucifer Rising. <sighs> I've seen them. I love them. So, yay. Uh, they are both uh, relatively short. You can find them on YouTube or Vimeo. Uh... You know, you just Google them and you'll find what you're looking for. Uh, I, I don't know anything about them. I was just trying to find Deep Weird because that's what I was looking for. And they came Please, up. Please, no more movies about dysfunctional relationships. I bet you're going to get those, least... so sorry. Oh, I'm going to have to choose a movie that isn't about that. Maybe no, I mean... movies are on some level. But... <laughs> this one is... They're short films. They're, they're, they're very... Yeah, experimental, and they're very specific to a time in our culture when just, like, everyone was, uh... High. High and trying to be (laughs) mystic, you know? Everybody was a mystic. Uh, Kenneth Anger's a weird, weird man, and, uh, these movies are vaguely linked to the the Manson family, so that's, like, why I I get to nerd out about that. That's what I'm excited about. (laughs) Nice. Well, uh... It's time for the plug zone before we all uh, fuck off. Um, <laughs> Kyle, what, <laughs> Kyle, where can we find you on the internet? 
You can find me on Twitter at Tyle Kerner, T-Y-L-E-K-U-R-N-E-R. Um, I got new business cards and they're so pretty. I'm so happy about them. Ooh, send me uh, one. I shall. Um, and, uh, you can find my writerly, writerly things, um, at tilekerner.tumblr.com. I've been doing a series of essays about queer cinema for Paste Magazine this month that are weekly. And the last one was on The Fluffer, which is this great, <laughs> uh, film that's by the directors of Still Alice. And it's about this guy, this bisexual guy who moves out to LA to become a director, but, um, he ends up working at a porn company and falls in love with a gay for pay star. And yeah, it, it turns into a film noir. It's really cool. Cool. Uh, Destiny, where can we find you? At Fridge Buzz now, all one word. Um, and my podcast, Badland Girls, is at badlandgirls.com. And anywhere you like to dip into your podcasts, um, we are also going to be doing the Benson Femfest uh, this August. So if you're in the Omaha area, prepare to get all kinds of weird things thrown at you at a Badland Girls live show. <laughs> uh, M. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at EM underscore being. And uh, me and Jackson have a video game podcast called Normal Mapping. It's once a month. You can find it at normalmapping.com or on iTunes or YouTube or wherever the fuck all of your fine podcasts are sold. Um, it's good. We're going to talk about Star Wars a lot next episode. It's going to be real fun. <laughs> <sighs> yeah, it is. Uh yeah, I am at Headfalls Off on Twitter. Uh, that's where I am. That's, yeah, I guess that everything will covered. This podcast is over. Go away. All right, we're done. Hooray. Yay. You treated us like real Marlenes there. <laughs>